We're going to look at um, a, a passage in Luke 8, but before we do that, just to remind you that this is part of an ongoing series. It's actually probably going to be the last one that I look at in this series. Uh, we're looking at Jesus as the friend of sinners, and uh, if you've been around for some of those, you'll know that we're looking at accounts in the Gospels, which are four eyewitness accounts written by those who were very close to Jesus or um, had access to those who lived and walked with him during his three years of ministry in Israel. We've been looking at some examples of Jesus meeting with individuals and the change that he brought to those individual lives. We looked at uh, Matt the taxman, we looked at the woman at the well, we looked last time at Zach the money man. Well today we're going to look at one more which is the head case on the beach. Okay, and uh, we're going to look at a, an example of how Jesus breaks in on and brings hope and life and freedom to an individual who was, as far as his society was concerned, an utter lost cause. And Jesus is just still doing the same today. Hopefully, as we've been working through this series, you have, along with myself, been seeing how Jesus so much reflects the missional nature of God that Jesus was very clear in terms of his understanding of his identity, who he was. He knew that he was a missionary. He was sent by the Father. He had come from above. And how his life was given over to the activity of mission. We've been seeing, hopefully, that the focus of that mission was not simply coming to maintain a religious community, but it was seeking and saving the lost who did not yet know the life and the love that God brings into lives. We have been looking at how Jesus did not withdraw into some safe religious community to pursue his own spirituality. But he lived out his life within the world of his day. He embedded himself amongst the lost and the needy. And he was moved with great compassion for those who didn't know God. And that was the thing that compelled and motivated and drove him through his brief three years of mission. We've been looking at how again and again and again Jesus intentionally engaged with these lost individuals and how that activity was really the very meat and drink of his life. Hopefully we've been through this, applying it to ourselves and understanding that for us to be missional and for us to be an Antioch-style church means that we understand our identity as missionaries and that our primary activity as his people in our day-to-day lives is to be the activity of mission of engaging with and building bridges and reaching out with the reality that we've experienced to those that do not yet know that reality and have not yet tasted of the good things that God has poured into our lives. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And to be missional then is to resist the tendency to withdraw from the world and create some kind of religious subculture that we occasionally invite others into. 
It is to realize that the church does not exist for our own benefit or even the benefit of our children. It exists for the benefit of the lost that do not yet know Christ. And it is therefore to focus our time and energy in the light of this on those who do not yet know the reality of Christ. And there are plenty of them there, aren't there? It is to do exactly what Jesus did. It is to live a lifestyle just like Jesus. And that's a lifestyle that is uh, embedded amongst the world and that involves intentionally engaging with individuals with a view to introducing them to this Jesus. So we're going to look this morning at one final dramatic example of Jesus doing just this. And um, I'd like to read from verse 26 of Luke 8. If, you can, uh, if you've got a Bible, you can follow it. If not, then um, just, just listen up. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. It's a dramatic, dramatic account, isn't it? And uh, we're going to look a little at the man who was oppressed by these evil spirits, and we're going to look at Jesus as the great redeemer, the one who that day brought permanent, eternal change into the life of this man. Before we do that, though, I just want to make a couple of introductory comments. I think I just want to mention one or two things. The first thing I think we need to recognize, and it confronts us immediately when we get into this story, is the reality of demons. You cannot read this encounter without confronting this reality. And when we read through the Gospels with our kind of Western worldview and mindset, it's very easy for us to kind of brush over or conveniently ignore this reality. 
You see, we live in a culture that teaches us that if things are not material, they are not real. Behind our culture is a mindset, if you like, a worldview, a way of thinking that teaches us that reality only consists of what we can see and detect and measure and analyze. But that's not the worldview of the Bible. If we approach the Bible in that way, we have to conveniently ignore the many, many supernatural realities that are described. Or we may patronizingly explain them away as the result of a primitive culture, just trying to make sense of the world that they lived in. But if we accept the Bible as God's description of reality, we must accept that reality exists of both a material, physical world as well as an immaterial, supernatural world. And in fact, these two are part of a single world that God himself has created. Most cultures actually accept that view of reality. They have no problem with that. But for us here... In the West, it's a difficulty for us sometimes. Well, what we discover here, in this instance, we discover many, many other places in the New Testament that the supernatural aspect of the world we live in is inhabited in part by demons. They are real, they are invisible, and they can attach themselves to an individual that, with the result that he or she is influenced and affected and oppressed by their presence in their personality. What we have in Luke 8 is an extreme example of this. But the New Testament contains many examples of individuals who are infiltrated by the intrusive presence of evil spirits. And it's no different today. Demons are just as real, they are just as destructive They haven't dissolved in the age of science or retreated from modern Britain. They are as active and real today as they were in the day of Jesus, even in respectable old Winchester. Many cultures, of course, would accept that, and it would sound to them perfectly reasonable. But for us, it can sound like the preacher has lost his marbles. Because there is a worldview, way of thinking issue that we have to get through if we're going to accept God's version of reality. So that's the first comment I want to make. Secondly, I just want to mention on the back of that, that the vital place of deliverance in mission. One of the results of our reluctance to accept that reality is that the practice of seeing people set free from the activity of demons, is pushed to the fringes of our mission. And so we get into a situation where we can think that we, ordinary believers, are like God, part of God's regular army, and that our commission is to get on with communicating the gospel, and if we're really radical, laying hands on sick people and seeing them healed. But we can think that within God's army, there's some kind of secret SAS core who do all the deliverance stuff. They have access to special knowledge and they work undercover in dangerous and covert operations. And I just want to say right at the beginning, I don't believe that's the picture that we get in the New Testament. 
what we find is that commanding demons to leave is part and parcel of ordinary mission for ordinary believers like you and me. To become a missional church, I believe, involves accepting and embracing and acting upon that truth. It doesn't mean we become weird and wacky and we start looking for demons under every doorstep. But it means that we accept that part of our commission is to deal with demonic oppression in lives as we come up against it in the course of our mission. That's exactly what Jesus modeled. Luke 4.18, he said that the Spirit was on him to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set at liberty those who were oppressed. When he commissioned the twelve, he said, it says in, in Matthew 10, verse 1, he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. Matthew 10.8, he said, proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. The 72 also received the same commission. In Luke 10:17, we read of how they returned, having been sent out on a short-term mission trip to Jesus. And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And of course, the Great Commission itself includes this aspect of our mission. Mark 16:17, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. So driving out demons is an integral part of our mission and it's part and parcel of what it means to be a missional church as we reach out with compassion to a world that does include many individuals who are severely oppressed by evil spirits. So let's look at the example here that we have and I want us to look first of all at this lost cause that we find here, this Man from the Gerasenes whose life was infiltrated by the harmful, destructive reality and presence of evil spirits. We have here, obviously, an extreme case. This man was clearly in a tremendously bad way. He's the kind of individual that today would most likely be confined to an institution or a hospital the kind of person that we might consider to be far too gone, a lost cause, so infiltrated by the presence of evil spirits that he hardly resembles a human being, a complete head case. If the name Legion is any indication of how many demons were oppressing this single individual, then the reality was he was in a very, very bad way. And the fact is, his society had no solution to his oppression. There was no remedy, there was no therapy, there was no course that they could put him through that would bring healing and wholeness to his life. He was, as far as his society was concerned, lost and utterly hopeless. Let's look at some of the marks of his oppression. And I just want us to run through a list of features here that, um, that we have. Symptoms, if you like, of his demonic oppression. As we look at this, I believe it's possible to identify what may be some indications of oppression. Maybe in our own lives, you may be here this morning and you may identify with some of these things. But certainly as we read through this, I think we'll recognize that these are features in many ways of the society 
and the mission field that we've been called to engage with and to bring God's gospel into. As we look through these, I think we will recognize some. It doesn't mean that every disorder can be traced back to the influence of demons, and I'm in no way saying that. But it does mean that there are certain things that were true of this individual that may indicate some form of spiritual oppression. So let's just look one by one at some of the features of this man's oppression. First thing that we find is that this was a long-term disorder. Luke describes how this man had been in this condition for a long time in verse 27. So long, in fact, that his community had given up on him. He was not just going through a seasonal depression. This wasn't just winter blues. He had a deeply entrenched disorder, probably for several years, if not most of his life. No doubt his oppression had, infected him, had affected him for so long that it had actually become a part of who he was. The result of that, of course, was that he was probably just labeled the local head case. And no one really expected this guy to ever change or be healed. He was a lost cause. He was unsalvageable. He was a wreck of a man whom his society had confined to the rubbish heap of society. That's ultimately where the devil wants individuals to end up, isn't it? Demonic infiltration seeks to lock an individual into a long-term cycle of disorder. It seeks to produce such a deeply entrenched disorder that a person begins to own and accept that disorder as part and parcel of their identity and who they are. That's exactly what we have here, a long-term disorder. Second feature was an inappropriate behavior. The guy was stark naked and apparently hadn't worn any clothes for a long time. Now that's inappropriate behavior, isn't it? It was inappropriate in his day. It would be inappropriate today. It was the result of a conscience that had been so confused and trashed through the presence of demonic oppression that he no longer was able to recognize what was appropriate and what was inappropriate. He had been harassed and infiltrated and oppressed to that degree. And the result of that was that he had lost all sense of self-worth. That meant he acted in a way that undermined any sense of personal dignity and self-respect. Again, there is evidence there of oppression. The devil loves to undermine the pure, God-given dignity that God has invested into us as human beings. He loves to trash the conscience. He loves to instill shame and condemnation and humiliation. He's described in Scripture as the slanderer, the accuser. And he will wound the conscience of an individual so an individual is affected in a way that they no longer have any sense of self-worth and personal dignity. He loves to tamper with the conscience. He loves to lock individuals into behavior that is humiliating. For this guy, it was very public behavior. 
for you, it may be private behavior, patterns and cycles and addictions that undermine the holy human person that God created you originally to be. Maybe an addiction to pornography or other secret behavior that brings shame and a total lack of self-worth into your inner being. Inappropriate behavior. Third thing was isolation. This guy lived in the wilderness. Verse 29 speaks of how he was driven by the demon into the desert. He was driven out of society, out of community, out of an integrated relationship with other human beings into an environment where he was totally and utterly alone and isolated. Isolation. The result of the influence of the demonic in his life was that he was socially isolated, withdrawn, unable to integrate with or become a part of society. He became alienated and isolated and cut off from the spirit of others. It's another example of the rotten fruit that evil produces. You see, where God created men and women to live integrated in loving family units and as part of a wider community, evil spirits in an individual and in a society work to fragment that integration and isolate individuals. And the result is that individuals become so isolated and detached and alone. Isolation. Next thing we find is that there was a deep restlessness. Verse 7 says, for a long time he had not lived in a house. He was unable to settle. He was a wanderer. He roamed around in the wilderness and among the tombs. He refused to be confined or restrained in any way. He was just like Cain, who wandered in the land of Nod as a restless wanderer. And again, where God's intention for us and for humanity is to experience a deep sense of belonging and contentment, the devil produces just the opposite of that. A sense of frustration and restlessness. Fifth thing we find is that he had a fixation with death. Verse 27 says, he lived among the tombs. He hung out in the graveyard. This was the place of death where corpses were laid to rot and decompose. Now our natural response to such places is to want to avoid them altogether. But this guy made his home among the dead. It expressed, I think, something of a morbid fascination and sense of kinship with death itself. In fact, he was more at home among the dead than he was the living. Again, I think this indicates the activity of evil spirits. An unhealthy interest in death or in contacting the dead, in ghosts and in the afterlife, can all be indicators that there's the presence and the infiltration of evil spirits. Sixth thing was a tendency to self-harm. Mark 5 verse 5, in Mark's version, we read that night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. His chief occupation was self-abuse. 
Such was the psychological torment that he was suffering. He would cry out like some manic animal and would physically harm himself. Again, this is very clearly an indication of demonic activity. You see, demons not only seek to wound the mind and the emotions and the conscience, but even the physical bodies that God has created us with. We live in a society today where there is an explosion of self-harm among our young people. One reason or another, for one reason or another, precious individuals choose to harm themselves physically. One final thing is outbursts of violence. This was a man who could not be subdued. Whenever he was restrained, the account says that he would break the chains that held him and be off again in the desert. Matthew 8 says that he was so fierce that no one could pass that way. So here's someone who is intensely and seriously intimidating to be around, prone to outbursts of aggression and violence. And again, that's an indication. The Bible says that the devil is a murderer. And the Bible often pictures the evil one as a violent and destructive, harmful spirit. So that's the lost cause that Jesus encountered that day. And these, I believe, are some of the results and the indications of the awful oppression that this man had suffered under for year after year after year. I think they complete a picture, don't they, of an individual who is profoundly disturbed. Someone whose personality has been so deeply infiltrated and affected by evil spirits that he is considered to be utterly unreachable. A vivid example of how the devil desires to corrupt and distort and wreck our God-given humanity. These may be some of the signs of that activity. I think the sobering thing, actually, when you read through that list, is that these are features of the society, the mission field that you and I live in. And it just shows us that, actually, in modern Britain today, just as in the world of Jesus in his day, there are demonic spirits that need dealing with in the lives of individuals. And that that is, as I've said, part and parcel of our mission as God's people as we reach out with his compassion. What we have here is at the extreme end of the spectrum. And I think one of the reasons why it's there recorded for us is to demonstrate that Jesus can change and save and redeem what is, according to the world, a total lost cause. And yet it may be that you, even here in this building this morning, recognize or identify with some of the elements of these symptoms. You may not be at that end of the spectrum, but you may recognize in your life that there are patterns and cycles of behavior, maybe secret issues, that indicate that you need prayer. You need the same Jesus that met with this man that day on that beach to deal with what is influencing and infiltrating and affecting your life. And we will have a chance to pray for you if you'd like that. Now, the good news is that that's not how the story ends. That's good news, isn't it? It's not a tragedy. It's a story of hope and change and deliverance and freedom. Because one day, Jesus arrives on the beach in his boat. 
He has sailed all the way from the other side to get there. He has encountered a life-threatening storm on the way. And yet he steps out of his boat onto that beach and that man's life on that day is completely transformed and turned around. When Jesus steps out of his boat onto the beach, there is a dramatic personal encounter. That's what it means to become a Christian. It means to have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ that leaves you changed and free to be the man or woman that God has called you and created you to be. The result for this guy is that he's freed from his oppression and he is so radically transformed that the whole town is totally freaked out. In fact, they're more freaked out with him when he's whole and redeemed than they were when he was demonized and oppressed. Such is the power of Jesus to change an individual. So let's look now at the great redeemer. We find here that Jesus reveals something of who God is. And that the first thing we find is that he reveals that God is a God of grace. 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 That is exactly what this man needed. That's precisely what our oppressed society needs. The grace of God. This guy was someone who was irretrievably lost. Hardly recognizable as a human being. Resigned to a life of torment and oppression. And yet Jesus sails six miles across the Lake of Galilee. Braving a major storm for a personal encounter with him. Having freed the man from his demons and commissioned him to declare what Jesus has done, Jesus then, as we read, gets right back in his boat and sails back to the other side of the lake. This was the extent of his mission. He sails six miles, braves a life-threatening storm to touch one individual life, and then he gets back in his boat and sails back to the other side. That's amazing grace, isn't it? It's an example of just what Jesus meant when he said, I have come to seek and save the lost. If it was me, I'd perhaps question the wisdom of a long and dangerous journey to meet with one individual who's a complete head case. Is it a good investment of time? Well, in Jesus' answer, it was. That's exactly why he had been sent into the world. And it illustrates powerfully that there is no one who is far too gone. He may be a lost cause as far as his society is concerned, but he is on Jesus' radar. And the encounter that he has with Jesus on that beach beside the Sea of Galilee changes him forever. It's an encounter, I believe, that reveals the extent of God's grace and compassion for those oppressed and in psychological torment in our society. Where the world is either bewildered or horrified or embarrassed or amused, Jesus is broken hearted. This was a man made in the image of God. Someone that as God, Jesus had knit together in his mother's womb. Someone that had been given a unique personality and purpose. And for one reason or another, perhaps through abuse or trauma, or some other series of events, that precious, individual, unique personality had been trashed and wrecked. 
He'd been oppressed and harassed, robbed of his dignity and self-respect, locked into a cycle of disorder and chaos until Jesus, embodying the compassion and grace of the God who had sent him into the world to seek and save the lost, engaged with him on that beach that day. The grace of God sails across the Lake of Galilee for a God-ordained meeting with this man. And throughout the Gospels, we find again and again Jesus doing just that, touching all manner of lost causes. The Gospels teach us that there is no one who is far too gone, no one who's fallen beyond his reach, no one who is not on his radar, no one who is irretrievably lost. In fact, the Bible teaches us that especially those who have exhausted all human compassion are the targets of his grace and his love. And he loves to reach out to those who are wrecks. He's the God of grace. He doesn't wag his finger in disgrace and in disapproval. He is the embodiment of grace and compassion. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's true today, isn't it? The reality is, you see, that despite the illusion of success and personal health and wholeness out there on our streets, we live in a society full of people who are psychologically harassed. You may be one of them. As I've said, you may be locked into an addiction or prone to violence. You may be withdrawn and alienated. You may be secretly self-harming. God loves you. You're on his radar. That's why you're here this morning. He wants to break into your life and he wants to sort the mess out. All you need to do is come to him like this man did. Acknowledging the truth of who he is in all his divine authority and identity falling at his feet and inviting his help into your life. And I want to encourage you to do that this morning. The challenge for us who have already done that and are now participating with God in his mission of grace is whether such people are on our radar. Whether we are willing to embrace the inconvenience involved to reach out to those that society has given up on. I felt very personally challenged by this. We had a, a visit into the prison the week before last that was absolutely wonderful. We had a wonderful opportunity to meet with probably 15, 20 inmates who are in the segregated section of the prison. So they are those who are, amongst other things, sexual offenders and those who are um, kept away from other prisoners for their own health and safety. And we had the opportunity just to show something of the grace of God to them. And God's at work in the lives of some of those men. They were passing around accounts of Ian McCormack's, uh, who's a man who encountered God and became a Christian. And they were, you know, one guy was passing it to the other guy saying, look, you've got to read this. <laughs> read about what God did in this man's life. That's the grace of God at work in those individuals. God wants us to carry his heart for the lost causes of our society, the addicts. The kids who are messed up through broken homes. The self-harmers. God wants to fill us with his compassion. He's the God of grace. Secondly, he's the God of power. 
The world at the moment is waiting to see what happens when hydrogen atoms collide at the speed of light. There's a few hitches uh, there as they try and mend their machine. But here on the beach of the Sea of Galilee, we have another altogether but equally significant collision, a power encounter. Here we find out what happens when the person of Jesus Christ collides with a whole host of entrenched evil spirits. It's a wonderful power encounter. It reveals not only that Jesus is full of grace and moved with the needs of those who are irretrievable, but he is also full of power and authority. He has the power to do something about it. Not just to sympathize, but to do something about the issue that's oppressing this individual. And as soon as Jesus steps foot on the beach, the man collapses and the demons cry out because they're in torment. That's the power of the presence of Jesus Christ as it enters into the life of an individual. Note here that there's no challenge to Jesus' authority. There's no spiritual sparring match. There's no hours of tussling and resistance. The moment Jesus shows up, the demons are in torment. And they are begging him for permission to leave. As soon as he gives them permission, they're gone. That's the power of Jesus. It is instantly recognizable. It is irresistibly powerful. You see, the Bible does not give us a view of reality where good and evil are equal but opposite forces. Where God is somehow in some kind of spiritual, eternal wrestling match with the powers of darkness. That's not the worldview of the Bible. At the center of the message of the Bible is the person of Jesus Christ. He is God incarnate, carrying divine authority, expressing limitless power. And as he engages in mission, he exercises that power and authority with great compassion. And again and again, demons instantly recognize it and are expelled. He is the God of power. The good news is that we have received that power and authority ourselves as his people. Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples. And that involves dealing with oppression where we confront it in individual lives. So he is the God of power. He's also the God of change. What happens here as a result of this collision with the grace and power of God is complete transformation. And that's what mission produces. The mission of God involves rescue and restoration. It involves a multitude from every people group encountering the person of Christ, knowing the forgiveness of their sins and being restored to all that God originally intended them to be. That process continues throughout this lifetime, but it often begins with a dramatic experience of change. Jesus called being born again. That was this man's story here. We find that as a result of experiencing the grace and power of Jesus, he's a man who ends up in happy submission to Jesus. Matthew says, and Luke says as well, that he ends up sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? That's exactly where we end up when we collide with Jesus. Before this, this man had been wild and restless, unrestrained, 
And yet here he is now sitting in utter contentment at the feet of Jesus. No longer restless, in a posture of humility and submission to Jesus himself. Not fearful submission, but a recognition of who Jesus is. And as a result of being won over by his grace and delivered through his power. Well, that's where we all end up when we collide with the person of Jesus and respond to him. Happy submission to Jesus. We read next that he ended up in his right mind, thinking clearly. This man had suffered for years with nothing but psychological torment. He was harassed mentally. He lived on the edge of sanity itself. He existed in a crazy world of madness and delusion. But now, like the prodigal son, he comes to his senses. The reality of Jesus breaks into his mind. Light drives out the darkness and his damaged mind is restored. He ends up also full of dignity and self-respect. Luke says that he ends up clothed. He's been locked, as I said, into a cycle of self-harm and a complete lack of self-respect, running around starkers, bruising himself with stones, crying out like a manic animal. But now he's clothed and in his right mind. He's encountered the grace of God. And the result of encountering God's undeserved, unmerited love in your life is that you are left with a deep sense of self-respect And God-given wholeness and dignity. That's where this man ended up. That's where you can end up this morning. As you submit yourself and acknowledge who Jesus is and invite him into your life. One final thing I want us to look at is that he is also a God of commission. Having met with Jesus, this man understandably wants to stay sitting at the feet of Jesus. In fact, he begs him to take him with him in that boat. But Jesus, interestingly sends him to be a witness to his city and his region. And that's exactly what he does in obedience to that commission. Having encountered his grace and his power and been transformed, he is now commissioned. Not to get into a boat and go to some foreign region, but just to go home to his own people and his own city and proclaim Christ to those people. Mark 5.19 words it in this way. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. What a wonderful commission to receive. I think this is a good place to end. As we've been looking at the example of Jesus, as we've been considering what it means to be a missional people, It means that having experienced the grace and the power of God in our lives, we also experience his commission on our lives. We understand our identity as missionaries and we happily get on with the task that Jesus has commissioned us to do, which is compassionately reaching out to and engaging with the lost. So let me encourage you, if you have encountered this great Redeemer, If you have tasted something of his grace and his power. If you've known his transformation in your life. Be affected by his compelling commission. Jesus' grace honed in on this wreck of a man. But his heart also was for the multitudes of this man's city. And the surrounding district. 
And his solution was not to go himself. He got back in the boat and went to the other side. His solution was to send him with a commission to go home and to tell his friends how much the Lord had done for him. That's a wonderful commission, isn't it? I think it's wonderfully achievable and releasing. You see, our commission is not to stand on some platform or street corner and cry out the gospel on a Saturday. Our commission is simply to go to our friends. And if we don't have friends, we need to make friends. It's to engage with those that we have relationship with. It's to share with them the good things that God has done for us. That's what it means to be a commissioned missional people. So let's bring it to an end there then. I think that we have here a wonderful illustration of the grace and power of Jesus as he sets about his mission to rescue and restore. We find the compassion of God towards those that the world considers irretrievable. We find the compassion of God towards those who are harassed and oppressed. How he changes their situation, delivers them from behavior that undermines self-respect brings them to contentment where they've known nothing but restlessness, brings change and life into their lives. You may be here this morning and that may, in some way, you may identify with some of these things. We're going to spend some time responding to Jesus now in worship. We believe the Jesus that we read about here is very much alive and real and amongst us by his spirit today. And so I want us just to respond in worship now. And open our hearts to this God of grace and power. I think the first song we're going to do, actually, Tash is going to sing to us. And as we do that, I want us just to own the words in our own hearts and be responding to God in our own hearts. But I want to particularly appeal to you this morning. If you don't know this Jesus, or maybe you do know this Jesus, but you know in your life that God has put his finger on something of an issue today. I'm not saying that you're an extreme case. But you know there's an issue that may indicate that there's an oppression that you need to be set free from. We can do that very simply without any drama this morning. I'd like you as we sing and as we worship just to come forward. I'm very happy to pray for you. There are others here who would love to sensitively pray for you. I want to invite you. If you know in your heart, and I believe you will know, God's speaking to me this morning. I need prayer. I want to encourage you to come forward. I know that's a a difficult thing to do sometimes, but we're here not looking at you. We're here looking at Jesus, worshipping him. I want to invite you to come forward and we will pray for you. But for all of us, let's open our hearts, shall we? And let's say, God, fill us with your compassion for people in our day, just like this. Fill us with your power and authority that we would bring change into many, many lives in this coming season. Let's worship together.